Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of What's Important Now, the podcast from the United States Border Patrol Academy, where we talk about things that matter to the men and women of the United States Border Patrol and their families. Now, today we have a very special topic. We're going to talk about a relatively unknown segment of the United States Border Patrol, but it's becoming more and more popular over the years because people are seeing the work that they do and how important it is to border security. And that's our special operations group. Now, a little bit about how the Border Patrol functions. We divide up the country into 20 geographic commands. So you'll have 20 sector chiefs that are in charge of a specific area of the country. And then in addition to that, you have two more commands on the same level as those geographic commands. You have the United States Border Patrol Academy, which is, is me. And then you have the Special Operations Group, which is uh, commanded by a chief patrol agent and a deputy chief patrol agent. And they oversee the Border Patrol Tactical Unit, the Border Patrol Search, Trauma, and Rescue Team, and the Mobile Response Team. So today with us, we have the Deputy Chief Patrol Agent, Mr. Jesse Munoz. Jesse, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Now, one of the things that, uh, so these, these 22 commands that are out in the field, they all report to a headquarters element in Washington, D.C., which is the Chief of the Border Patrol, the Deputy Chief, and, and its, uh, its directorates. So the Special Operations Group operates anywhere in the country and, in fact, anywhere in the world. So, Jesse, just by way of explanation, let's talk a little bit about the Special Operations Group, and, and how it was formed. What, what is the mission of the Special Operations Group? Well, the mission of the Special Operations Group is basically support the Border Patrol. Now, we just offer unique capabilities that a lot of the sectors don't have organically, or they do have them, but in certain um, events or, or certain time periods, uh, they, they don't have enough uh, of those resources, so they'll reach out to Special Operations Group. So, you know, the three teams that you mentioned, of course, we, pro we provide BORTAC, BORSTAR, uh, and also MRT. Okay, and so each one has a, a certain skill set that is not necessarily available on the conventional side of law enforcement in the Border Patrol. So not only do you bring that, that augmentation to the forces out in the, uh, in the geographic sectors, but also certain capabilities that may not exist in those sectors. Exactly. So if you look at it, uh, there's really two examples. So uh, most sectors have a special operations detachment where they'll have BORSTAR and, and uh, BORTAC elements within their sector. So if you look at a sector like South Texas where they get very busy in the summer, it's a little bit more than they can handle with their own organic special operations detachment. So they'll, they'll request support from uh, special operations group. Then there's also sectors, uh, especially on the northern border, that don't have a special operations detachment. So we'll serve as their special operations response also. Okay, and so the Sector Special Operations Detachment, and let's, let's talk about uh, one on the southwest border. Let's talk about the Rio Grande Valley sector. It's one that's uh, on the news a lot, and, of course, it's very busy. And in the summertime, very hot, very humid. A lot of people need to be rescued as they're crossing through the desert. And so they have an organic star team, but, as you said, not near enough to cover the entirety of the expansive area they've got. And so you'll go down there, and you'll augment that force to basically save lives. Correct. And so if you look at it, just for example, say they had 30 Borstar agents uh, in RGB sector. In the summer, they might need 60. Well, it doesn't make a lot of sense to move 60 uh, Borstar agents in there permanently, and then they're not needed the rest of the, the, the time of the year. So with special operation groups allow us some flexibility. So we can flex into that sector during their busy months and then go work in other sectors and in other times of the year. So the Special Operations Group hasn't always existed, and, and neither has the Border Patrol Tactical Unit or the Border Patrol Search, Trauma, and Rescue Team, or MRT for that matter. When did SOG actually come into existence? 
So like you mentioned uh, previously, Bortac had been on Fort Bliss since um, the early 90s, I believe 1984. So in 2007 is when the, the idea of SOG really came to fruition and it stood up with Borstar and Bortac being co-located. So we had disparate teams. Uh, as you said, Bortac existed since 1984 and Borstar uh, late 90s. 1998. 1998. Correct. So they were disparate, uh, separate missions altogether. And then the mobile response team came along a little bit later after that. But this idea that they needed to come together and be part of an overall special operations group, what's the benefit of that? Why would we have all the special operations elements, this is a softball question, of course, sure, sure. under one umbrella? One thing that it does is it allows us to standardize everything. And this is everything from a, from equipment to training, uh, resources. One one event that really kind of sped things up in, in, in a, as far as uh, creating special operations group was Hurricane Katrina. So in 2005, the U.S. Border Patrol, of course, sent a lot of uh, Borstar and, and Bortac members there. But one of the things that we realized was e even things like uniforms uh, weren't standardized, gear and equipment, definitely the training, uh, TTPs were different, and there wasn't a unified command structure. So that was really kind of what started the idea of we need to have one centralized command. And, it, and so that work started immediately after Hurricane Katrina. And, and then, like I said, it came to fruition in 2007. So I want to get into some of the, the more notable operations that each team in SOG has done. And Katrina is, is just one example of that. But let's talk a little bit about the specific mission sets that each team has, because they each maintain their own specific mission set. But now they complement one another. So you may deploy a SOG team that needs both a Borstar skill set and a Bortac skill set or MRT for that matter. Correct. So, of course, you, you know, Bortac mission is rural interdiction, uh, tactical, Borstar's medical support. One thing that Chief Sullivan has started is what we refer, we refer to as the SOG package. So if you look at uh, civil unrest missions that we did, uh, Portland is probably the best example. So you would think, well, that's a Bortac mission, but there's Borstar agents deployed with them to, to provide medical support, and there's also intel agents. So today, there's almost never... Uh, a support request that we fill that's just uniquely to one team. It's always uh, a group, and it's Bortac, Borstar, and, and Intel working together. So for somebody like me, that's that's amazing to hear. We were talking about this because 20 years ago, whenever I went through, it was not the case. Uh, there, the teams were very competitive with one another, and uh, I, I think you know, the maturity that has taken place over those years and the way that everybody interacts and, and, and works together is really good to see. No, absolutely. And so, you know, going back to when I came on board Star in 2004, we used to go work missions in, in um, Tucson, and we just worked different parts. So like, we, we didn't work together. We didn't complement each other. We're just in, in, in opposite parts of the, the desert. Now you don't see that. Now if you look at somewhere in, in South Texas, Again, uh, it, it's, a, it's a package that comes from SOG, and it's Borstar, Bortac, and Intel working together. Seems silly to think that it ever was not that way. Absolutely, and it, and it took us several years to get here. Well, that just I think that's indicative of just you know a young Department of Homeland Security, a young Customs and Border Protection, and just everything, the way that it's evolved and grown. And we continue to get better every year. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's talk about each team. So, well, let's talk about this first. You mentioned special operations detachments. So most sectors have those detachments that they have teams as, as well. Is there or what is the difference between the teams at the sector level and the SOG units, the national teams that are in El Paso? Yeah, great. And, and I really like this question because it allows me to, to uh, expand on it. And I tell you, there's a lot of 
confusion between SOD and SOG, even uh, within the Border Patrol. So there's really no difference in, in capability. Uh, a BORTAC operator uh, basically has the same uh, capability as a operator at, at SOG if they're at an SOD or versus SOG. Where, where it comes into play is the SOD agents have an area of operation that they're assigned to, that they're responsible for. So those SODs belong to the, to the sector chief. And if he has a special ops response within his sector, he, of course, he's going to reach out to his SOD. What's unique about SOG is we really don't have a, a, a designated area of operation. So we can go anywhere within the continental U.S. We also take lead role on the OCONUS missions uh, as well. But the, the relationship is, you know, we kind of support each other, the SODs and, and the SOG. So if there, there is an OCONUS mission, a lot of times we'll pull operators from the SODs to, to augment the teams. Uh, and then when we, when we go into work an area, we really rely on the SODs to, to kind of be the local experts because they, they sure. know that geography. They know the, uh, the area and, and the, the trends from the criminal element. No, and, and great point. So this is one of the things I think is interesting. So you have the command relationship at play here. So as you said, the special operations detachments, they have a patrol agent in charge. I, I did that in, in Rio Grande Valley sector, and I answered to the chief of the Rio Grande Valley sector at the time, and I had the BORTAC team and the BORSTAR team and the MRT team and the EMT program, which we didn't talk about yet. Sure. But on the ADCON, on the administrative control side, the, the train, organize, and equip piece, we still very much got that from, from SOG. The, the training that our operators received and how we were equipped so that it was standardized across the nation, that all comes from SOG. Correct. And then, uh, so no matter what sector you you work at, whether you're a on the SOD for Tucson or for Laredo or for San Diego, all of that remains standardized, so it's very easy to lift and shift and support one another or even do a SOG deployment. Correct. And, and you know, again, I think the Hurricane Katrina is a great example. We wouldn't have that issue right now. So if there's another event, a hurricane, natural disaster, and w- we know now that if we pull BORTAC and BORSTAR operators from around the country, they're going to show up in the same uniform. They're going to show up with the same equipment. They all have the same uh, training standards, and it, it's just a, a more fluid response. So why would somebody want to be on an SOD at a sector as opposed to be a member of SOG, the, the national team? Yeah, well, to start off, you're, you're going to have to start off at, at an SOD, and, and I, I think that's great uh, to, you know, give it a couple of years to see if you do want to continue and, and go to, to SOG. One thing with SOG, though, is our operational tempo is very high. We have operators that are deployed six to nine months out of the year, uh, it, it, and it's always something different at SOG. So it's, it's a great job. It's a great experience. But it's something you definitely would, you know, want to talk to your family about. Hey, I'm going to move you to El Paso, and then now I might be gone, you know, six to, to nine months out of the year. Yeah, and you mentioned OCONUS, and so for those that don't know, that's that means outside the continental United States, so all the foreign deployments. So when you say they're gone six to nine months out of the year, that may not even be in country. They may be in some other country. Correct. And a, a lot of times when you're in other countries, just because of what we teach is border security, you're in very remote areas, so it might not be possible to, you know, call home uh, every day like you're accustomed to. So let's talk about the individual teams for a second. So start with one that's uh, most near and dear to your heart, the Borstar team. And you were in Class 7, if I'm not mistaken, Correct. for, for Borstar. Talk to us a little bit about what the mission is for Borstar in general. What is the purpose of the Borstar team? Yeah, great. So I had, I had the great privilege of being the Borstar commander for five years. 
Uh, before, I, I felt Borstar was real heavy in search and rescue. Now, my background, uh, you know, eight years in the Army, my first four years, I was a combat medic. So I had always thought that we should transition into more tactical medicine. So if you look at Borstar today, it's a lot different than when me and you went through. Uh, if you look at the selection course and the training, it's more geared towards tactical medicine versus pure search sure. and rescue. And, and the reason I thought that that, that that was important is if you're trained in tactical medicine, you can do search and rescue missions, but it doesn't work in reverse. So if you're trained in search and rescue, you don't want to put those people into a tactical medicine situation. Now, the primary mission and, and one thing that we always go back to what Borstar and we should never forget is to take care of our, our fellow Border Patrol agents. That that will always be our main priority. Now, we can do a lot of other stuff. We can respond to natural disasters. We can save uh immigrants in the desert, anybody in distress, you know, if you're in the medical field, you don't get to decide who you save. You, you have a duty to act. Sure. But I think, um, you know, if you talk to people, uh, why do you want to go through the selection course? And, it, it, and it's hard and it's tough, physically and mentally demanding for, for five weeks. And why is it every year that we have these uh, Border Patrol agents, these men and when, uh, women willing to do it? I think it's that primary function of taking care of your your fellow border patrol agent in distress and that's something i think a lot of people probably don't know or haven't heard is that that's why borstar was actually stood up is to be there because of the remote areas that our men and women work in the intended purpose originally was to be out there for our own brothers and sisters should they need us and also be out there if anybody else whether it be people crossing illegally whether it be uh, people out there having a good time on vacation in some of the areas that we work we could be there to help as well, but primarily we were stood up to take care of our brothers and sisters as they were out on patrol should something happen to them. Yeah, and, and, and you know from working in, in South Texas and Laredo and, and Rio Grande Valley sector, we, we respond to U.S. citizens. If, if there's a car accident on Highway 35 mm -hmm. or uh, somewhere in, in Rio Grande Valley sector in a remote highway, and you call 911, the first thing they're going to do is call the Border Patrol, and they're going to send Borstar agents or, or maybe a Border Patrol EMT so uh, again, I, I think it's great. And, and if you look in the history of Borstar, and I say this a lot of graduation and speeches that I give, there's thousands and thousands of people that are alive today because of Borstar. And I think that's great. And, and you know, whatever your views are on illegal immigration, uh, I think everybody can agree people shouldn't die just because they're looking for a better life or, or across the desert. But I know for me and, and, and most Borstar agents that, that I know that that um, responsibility of being there for other border patrol agents is, is really something special. Absolutely. And it's odd because a lot of times, as you said, border patrol is one of the first calls that a 911 dispatch will make whenever they get a call in distress, because we're out there, we're in those remote areas. And a lot of the smaller communities have very limited, if any, emergency medical services themselves. So our men and women may be out there with a patient for prolonged periods of time and they're trained for that purpose. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I think in the in the political environment, you know, it's easy for people to look, you know, in a bad light on the Border Patrol. And so one thing that I always try to bring people back to, you know, when I'm talking to the community is a lot of times they don't realize all the money uh, and, and investment that the Border Patrol puts in to saving people. And and I think the, the and, and it's not just the Borstar team. Every Border Patrol agent has responded to a motor vehicle accident. Every Border Patrol agent I know has given food or their own lunch, you know, to, to somebody that they've encountered or need. So I think that's something the general public doesn't see is the the human side of, of Border Patrol agents. Well said. 
So an agent wants to be a board star agent. What do they have to do? Well, you know, one thing is the selection course is, is very tough. There, there's no way around that. But, but, you know, when I talk to young agents, I tell them, you know, it really is 90, 95 percent mental. That doesn't mean you don't have to get in shape, but everybody's in shape that shows up for the selection course. If, if you're not in top physical condition, you're not even getting invited to, to the to the selection course. That's kind of the common denominator of everybody. And, and it goes it's the same thing for board tech. But. What I would say is if you're a young agent and or, or an older agent and you want to try out for a board star is don't try to cram for the test. Start stu- start preparing your stuff maybe a year in advance. Uh, you know, one thing that's kind of unique with board stars, the emphasis on on water. So if you're not a great swimmer, as I tell people all the time, you don't have to be a great swimmer, but you have to be comfortable in the water. So I would start there. But again, I would give yourself a full year to get in shape. Uh, don't don't go out and start trying to run 10 miles tomorrow if run is not your thing. So just a slow, steady process. The other thing that I would really, really encourage somebody to do is find a, a board star agent and talk to them. Uh, you know, if you're at a sector that has an SOD, that's a great resource. Go and talk to the board star agents and say, hey, I'm interested. Maybe not this next class, but maybe in a year and a half. What do I need to start doing? And, and you'll find most guys are really, really well in the to help you prepare. So the agents have to be two-year veterans before Correct. they can even apply. Correct. And there's a there's a basic qualifier physical standard they have to meet just to be able to be invited to the basic. Correct. What are those? So you have to be able to do a, a mile and a half in 12 minutes, um, 60 push-ups in two minutes, um, seven pull-ups, and then the swim test is 250 meters in six and a half minutes. And I don't want people to get confused. That's not what it takes to be on Borstar. That is the minimum qualifier to be invited to attend the selection course. Yeah, and that's a great point. Mm-hmm. So if you're training to those standards and, and that's the best that you can do, you're probably not going to last very long at the selection course. So when you show up, you should be able to pass all of those, um, the entire PT test physically exhausted because that's what you're going to have to do at the selection course. And El Paso is about 4,000 feet elevation. Correct. So if you're training, uh, when I trained for uh, for both teams in El Centro, California, which is about 90 feet below sea level, it's a whole different world when you get to El Paso and try and do the same thing. Absolutely. And you know, a lot of people ask, well, why don't you let your agents when they travel in kind of acclimate to, to that? And the reason for that is that does doesn't happen in the real world. We might pull operators from El Centro or from Laredo, RGV that are, that are at uh, sea level, and then send them to Tucson where they're going to have to operate and save people on the mountains. So that's why we kind of build that into the selection course is uh, if, if you're going to respond somewhere, you don't always get a week to, to get there and get acclimated to the, to the terrain. So tell us a little bit about, you hear, okay, there's a basic, there's a selection course. What's the difference? What, what, what is a selection course? What does that entail? Yeah, and so this has been a, a great question. So this has been a lear- learning process over the years. So we, we have great research, resources in the military special ops community. So one thing that we've really tried to do is nail down the selection course just to that, the selection course. So we don't want to get into any training, uh, advanced tactics. We're just trying to select the best people that we can. You know, both selection courses will start off with around 75 students. We don't have a lot of time, so we need to run them through kind of, you know, the, the litmus test and see who are the, the, the most qualified. 
So when we talk about selection course, we're not talking about training. We're not talking about advanced training. You're not going to get like on Borstar, you're not going to get like an, uh, an EMT certification out of it. We just want to see your mental and physical attributes and make sure that you have what we want on the team. And that's a great point. You're not necessarily just looking for physical attributes. You're looking for other things about their character. You're looking at things, how they operate out of their comfort zone. That's what that selection course is designed to pull out of a person. When you do that litmus test, it's, it's not just who the PT stud is. Great. And, and yeah, a great point. And, and you know from, from being on both teams, one of the biggest qualities is, is your ability to work as a team member. Uh, and so that, that's why we put a lot of stress on the individuals at the selection course. We want to make sure they're not going to break, that they're able to, when they're physically uh, and mentally exhausted, they can still operate as a, as a good team member. So you can expect sleep deprivation. You can expect uh, being out in the field for prolonged periods of time, uh, being rationed on food, MREs. Correct. Maybe not being able to shower every time that you want to. Absolutely. And, and doing a lot of physical exertion. Correct. And still being able to exercise good sound judgment in an operational environment. Absolutely. And you brought up a great point of it's just not physical. You, you really need to be mentally prepared. You, you know, I heard a great uh, line from my um, – we were at the Special Forces Selection at Fort Bragg. And uh, the individual gave me the briefing was saying, you know, Special Forces, we used, used to just want the biggest and strongest guys. He's like, I don't need somebody that can carry 150 pounds of equipment. He's like, we have vehicles that carry equipment. I need somebody that's smart and that can think. And I think that's the probably the biggest transition you see with special ops, not only in law enforcement and the military, is really finding people that are intelligent as well. And so after the selection course, and, and what has been now, I, I remember what it was like when I went through, the, but the attrition rate, they start off with 75 people. Typically, what do we see graduate? Yeah, and, and so, it, you know, of course, it fluctuates, but on average, and, and this is for Borstar and Bortag, I would say we're probably averaging about 15, 10 to 15 out of that 75. But it's that will make it. That it will make it. So yeah. it's a selection process to make it to the 75. So, again, if you're training to the minimal standards and you show up, but we have 150 people that have passed those minimal standards, we're going to select the, the 75 top performers. So. We could get 150, 200 memos. We're going to invite the top 75, but then out of that, it's going to be about 10 or 15 are going to make it. And I want to dispel this rumor because I've heard it for years. We don't go into it with any number in mind. If all 75 can make it, great. It'd be, in fact, that's great for us. But if only 15 can make it, we're not going to pick based on a quota. We're picking the right people that we're looking for that have those attributes. Correct. And I think the, the, the biggest challenge with the selection course is you establish your standard. And like you said, if all 75 people showed up and, and they're going to meet the standard, then then we'll hand out 75 Borstar or Bortac pins. The flip side of it, and both both teams have seen it, if you only get four out of that 75, well, then that's what you get is four. But you can never, never mess with your standards just to get more personnel on the team. Well said. Well said. So let's switch over to the Bortac team and talk about their mission. So what, what does Bortec, why does it exist? Bortec, uh, and of course I'll, I'll preface this by saying, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a lot more knowledgeable about Borstar, but what Bortec does, their, their bread and butter is rural interdiction. Uh, now, you know, when I talk to people that have very little knowledge about border patrol or law enforcement military, they, they're kind of what you think of a conventional SWAT team. And, and that just means special weapons and tactics. Mm-hmm. So what Bortac can do, and I think what sets them apart from other special ops in law enforcement, 
is the role interdiction. They can really operate in very role environments uh, where, where basically nobody else can. And, and so you look at some of the, the areas that they operate in mountains in Arizona or working along the river in RGB, there's simply nobody else in, in federal law enforcement that can do it, and it's especially not do it at the level that Vortac can. So, yeah, so they do the you know, standard high-value targets, warrant service, civil unrest, all the things that most traditional tactical units would do, but they have that added piece that they do on the rural interdiction side that kind of sets them apart. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think one thing that I'm so proud of the BORTAC team and, and the way they've operated, especially recently, is they go to a lot of missions where there's no playbook for it. Uh, you look at the civil unrest, uh, again, to Portland. Um, you had the Federal Protective Service that, that was in, in a really tough spot. They called BORTAC. BORTAC shows up. And again, no playbook. Um, a year ago, civil unrest wasn't in our vernacular. We never mentioned civil unrest, not really what we did. Within that year, I think Bortac established themselves as the civil unrest experts. Now, we don't, we don't want to publicize that, and we don't want to become the, the, you know, the civil unrest call team, but, but Bortac just simply did an outstanding job. And that's those guys, again, going back to we don't need a bunch of tough guys that, that can do PT all, all day long. They can do that, but just really smart intellectual guys that can look at a problem where there's no solution and figure something out. And exercise sound judgment in the heat of the moment. Absolutely. And I think Portland's a great example of that. We know Bortac can go and kick doors down and, you know, be rough if they have to. They didn't do that in Portland. They showed restraint. They showed professionalism. Uh, and, I, and again, when I talk to, to other chiefs, I tell them everybody in the Border Patrol should be proud of how Bortac operated in Portland. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, we have to remember that we're law enforcement officers, and that's what sets us apart from the military, is our rules of engagement are very different. Absolutely. We're out there to actually preserve the public trust and, and, and keep the peace and keep everybody safe. It doesn't matter what we uh, what we look like or, or who we train beside, that will always be our rules of engagement. That's what keeps us, uh, that's what keeps us different from the military. Absolutely. And you, when you talk about uh, missions that we don't have playbooks for, of course, I go back to when, when you and I went through in the Elian Gonzalez uh, incident. That was that was another one. It's uh, nobody else could do it, or I think even wanted to do it. Absolutely. And, and so Bortac was tapped on the shoulder, and it say what you will, but it was successful operation. Uh, the, the mission was achieved, and nobody was hurt. Absolutely. So there are just several examples throughout the years. There's another one up in uh, New York State where we had the escaped uh, convicts. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people know that was Bortac that was uh, that was on that operation. Actually, brought that to a successful uh, resolution. Absolutely. Yeah. Hurricane Katrina, another one, War Star, uh, shining examples of, uh, of being out there and, and a, a mass casualty incident and, 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 a, and providing a skill set that, quite frankly, was in high demand at the time and a lot of uh, hard, long hours staying on the floor of an aircraft hangar and then going out and working 12 hours and, and seeing just some horrendous things. Uh, another good example of what uh, SOG did for the United States of America in the form of a, a Boar Star mission. Yeah. Another one that comes to mind is the Salt Lake City Winter Olympics in 2002. That might have been one of the first times we were all brought together under what would ultimately become uh, SOG, under under one chain of command to support the Marshal Service and Secret Service at a national security event. What else am I forgetting? What other operations? We got? There, there's a lot. So we could do a whole show just on, <laughs> on uh, past SOG missions. Uh, but, yeah, and, and like I said, I think what's unique with, with all of the teams 
is we get called upon a lot when nobody else can do the mission. And, and again, when there's no playbook and it's figure it out. And, and so we have all these missions in our history. One thing that we don't have is failed missions. And, and I think that's one thing that's really unique with our team is how successful they are when they get called upon. Couldn't agree more. So let's talk about the uh, basic standards. If somebody wants to become a BORTAC operator, so what do they need to do? Basically, the standards are the same, and we're actually going through a process now to, to kind of standardize it. And, and as we were having the conversation of, is, is the, the way the teams are working so well together, we're kind of getting to the point where if you want to be on special ops, whether it's sports star or board tech, the attributes we're looking for are the same. Now, I think it's very important that the, the, the two teams um, maintain their identity and their mission sets. Th- those are, are very different. Uh, you know, but having said that, you know, your average BORTAC guy is pretty well-trained in, in medical aspects. If somebody goes down, you're, you're, you're going to do pretty well if you have a BORTAC guy there. Same thing with BORSTAR guys. Uh, in, in the past, uh, BORSTAR operators didn't get a lot of tactical training. Well, that's kind of gone away. Uh, your BORSTAR guys are, are very well-trained in, in, in tactics now. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so that's one process that we're actually going through now is to standardize the standards uh, currently, uh, Borstar does seven pull-ups. Bortac does eight pull-ups. So maybe it'll be seven and a half pull-ups. Uh, <laughs> Got to have I, one more, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. But uh, so we're getting to a point where the standards are going to be identical. And, uh, it, you know, if you want to be on the team, the attributes that, that I mentioned that we're looking for in Borstar, same thing you're looking for in Bortac. Somebody, uh, critical thinking, uh, that can perform under pressure, selfless, humble, and they got to go through a selection course as well. Correct. Same same type thing. Looking for the same attributes, much the same thing. Sleep deprivation, you know, being out in the field for prolonged periods of time, being out of your comfort zone, still being able to function. Once you get done with either selection course, then comes the basic training and advanced training, right? Correct. Talk a little bit about that. So on the Borstar side, of course, it's going to be uh, tech, a, a lot more tactical medicine, but you're also going to get certified uh, as an EMT. So every, every Borstar agent has to go through EMT training. So that, that's four to five weeks of, of training there. So that's kind of their advanced training. Bortac has done an outstanding job of putting together their, uh, their, their basic certification course. So you go through selection, then you come through and do the, the, their certification course. And that's where you're actually, I feel, is, is going to become a Bortac member. So you got selected. That's great. That means you can, right. you, you know, you can uh, endorse some punishment. But then when you go through the, the BORTAC certification course, that's where you're actually getting all your skill, skill sets to be a BORTAC member. So and same goes. Somebody that's wanting to prepare, they need to be an agent for two years before they can even apply. But some of the things that they can do to help prepare to improve their chances of success. Yeah. I, again, I would start early. I would reach out to an SOD, to, to a BORTAC member, uh, and, and talk to them. And, hey, what was challenging for you, uh, where I need to perf- uh, uh, perform better on? Uh, and again, like I mentioned, swimming with uh, Borstar, I think if you want to try out for BORTAC and you've never uh, been on a, a ruck march, that, that might be something you might want to introduce Amen. yourself to. Amen. You, you want to learn how to pack your, your weight high on, mm-hmm. your, high on your back. You want to know about kidney pads and, and you, you kind of want to beat up your feet to kind of get them prepared for, for the course. But again, if you've never done it before, you want to talk to somebody that has that, that can help you and, and, and kind of walk you through the process. So I want to point out what you're actually saying with respect to both teams. You'll notice that in no point in time is he saying you need to be lifting a ton of weights, that you need to be bench pressing a ton, taking all kinds of supplements and 
but you do need to be doing some type of training that's going to be geared toward what you will be doing at these selection courses. So not necessarily the person that can bench press 400 pounds, but somebody that can, they can uh, hump a ruck that's 35, 50 pounds for six miles under time. Absolutely. And, and I think you said it best getting out of your comfort zone. So you definitely don't want to have regimented workouts like every day I'm going to run three miles because then your body prepares to run three miles. Uh, and, and they do this at both selection courses. Maybe you think you're going to run three, four or five miles and they add a little something to it. So mm-hmm. that's where it goes back to being able to perform when you're not comfortable. When your body's exhausted and telling you, I can't do anymore. Are you mentally tough enough to take control of your body and say, I'm going to keep going? And, and that's what we're looking for at, with Borstar and Bortec. And there's another, I think, misnomer that, uh, that you have to be prior military or that, that it's almost all prior military. Not really. Absolutely. And and I think with both teams, uh, you you know, you don't have to have a medical background to try out for for Borstar. Uh, You don't have to be, um, you know, a tactical or have a tactical background uh, to try out for Bortac. I I think what would serve you better is what you're interested in. You know, so a lot of times people ask, hey, what what do you think I should do, Borstar or Bortac? And I always respond, well, what do you want to do? Uh, because you're going to be a better team member if you're doing something that you're really, really passionate that about. That makes you happy. Exactly. And you still have a lot of people that are, that'll go out for both teams, or is that? Uh... We we do, and uh, I think before, and again, you know, as we talked about some of our, uh, our dirty laundry in the past, it was discouraged. Now it's really encouraged, Good. and and uh, you know, right now there's a Borstar class going on, and and, and there's a Bortac uh, operator in that class. And you're starting to see both people, uh, you know, from both teams uh, try out for the other selection course. And I just think that makes you a better trained person. If you're on the Borstar team and you've gone through Bortac selection or vice versa, that just gives you more knowledge to, to bring to your team. Absolutely. So we haven't talked about one team. That's the mobile response team. And I'll tell you, this is one that I became a huge fan of in RGV. Tell us a little bit about what they do, what their mission set is. So, you know, and I, I feel the same way. You know, with MRT at first, I was a little, I wouldn't say apprehensive. I just didn't know what is their mission going to be? How are they going to get used? Is this something that headquarters is is um, creating? And we hadn't really thought through the process. And I'll tell you, in the last few years, and especially being at SOG as long as I have, I'm a big fan of, of MRT uh, as well. So, you know, they're Border Patrol agents. They get a little advanced training more than a Border Patrol agent would get at the academy. But I think what makes them different, sets them apart, is their willingness to to do a lot of missions. So, you know, historically, if you look at like a Super Bowl or a, a, what we call an NSSE event, we would send Borstar Bortac wasn't really a Borstar Bortac mission. It was just, well, these are special ops guys. It's It's a... Uh, high-profile event, we'll send them. MRT does those uh, events now, and it frees up Borstar and Bortac to only do the special ops missions. But where I think they're really beneficial is operating in their own sectors. So whenever Borstar or Bortac is, is going to operate in a sector, I think RGV is a great example, first thing they do is, is find the MRT agents and, and hey, educate mm-hmm. us on what you guys know. Let us know how you're operating, what's successful. We're here to help you guys. We're not here to take over or, or run the mission. We're here to work with you guys. And I think they give the sector chief a lot of flexibility on where to put his assets as needed. So it's not permanently moving people into a station. It's let's move MRT into that area, let them take care of the problem, and then we can move them to another area that's needed. So this was my perspective, and I couldn't agree with you more. So being the patrol agent in charge of an SOD, I had all three teams. And as you know, 
the skill sets that come on a BORTAC team and a BORSTAR team make those assets a very finite resource, and they should be used in the right way because we spend a lot of time and energy getting that capability to exist in the first place, not necessarily to go out and plug a hole someplace. The mobile response team is more on the conventional side, and it is just the way I describe them, hard-charging, ground-pounding Border Patrol agents that want to go where the action is and will work themselves into the ground to get the job done. You can depend on them. They're out there, and they will be the last ones off the line until the job is done. I saw that time and time again in RGV. I was thankful for them every time. And I, it, I went to Laredo Sector. One of the first things I looked at trying to do was stand up an MRT there because I saw the value in it. That skill set in and of itself, just having that conventional force able to lift and shift where you need them and go after the threat in that conventional way is huge. Absolutely. And, and I would say this, if I was a, a, a young agent again and we had Borstar, Bortac, MRT, if I wanted to be on Borstar, Bortac, while I was waiting in, in that year or two years of training, I would definitely uh, want to be part of MRT. And the thing that I'm impressed with them is when we have these big national call outs and we have to send people to um, to Washington DC or, or, or whatnot. And when we, when we send that out and that solicitation, we're never short of MRT agents. It, it's kind of like what you were saying, it's just amazing that they're willing to volunteer for all of these missions. And you know, it's the same thing as Borstar and, and Bortac is they're, they're really committed to the mission and they always do a great job wherever we send them. Absolutely. So Talk a little bit about, so same thing, they have to be in for two years before they can uh, they can apply. What training do they have to go through? So their their training is, and that this is the biggest distinction between Borstar and Bortac, it's not a selection course. So, you know, we get those emails like, hey, how much PT should I do before I come? We know they're already Border Patrol agents. They're already coming with some skill sets. It, it, as part of their training, it's just going to be a little bit of an enhancement of what they already know. They're going to get some, some more shooting. They're going to get some... Uh, tactical combat casualty care, uh, a little bit more medical training, uh, just some of the stuff that, that Borstar and Bortac do, does that we think they need to, to do their missions in the sector. But, you, you know, another great point with those guys, it's a great recruiting bed for, for Borstar and Bortac because these guys come in, and like I said, their biggest attribute is their commitment to the mission, and that's definitely what we're looking for on Borstar and Bortac. So that's another great advantage is we bring them into uh, McGregor Range, you know, which is kind of part of Fort Bliss there. So we, we can start working with them early on in the process. And we have several hundred MRT agents scattered throughout the country right now, right? Correct. Do all southwest border sectors now have an MRT or is it still? Not not every southwest border sector. Uh, one thing, uh, a, a new trend is even on the northern border, they're starting to get smaller uh, mobile response team. And, and that just speaks to how successful they've been on the southwest border. Oh, I, I, up in Holton, Maine. You know, way up there, and I had an MRT team. And it just, Absolutely. They, again, you could depend on them no matter what, and uh, to this day, I, that's one team I didn't get a chance to be a part of because it was not, it didn't exist. You know, when, when I, but uh, I would definitely have wanted to do it, and yeah, I would absolutely. encourage anybody that's just thinking about it to, to sign up because it's just how much more fun can you be? I mean, it's you're signing, you're you're getting to do what you signed up to be, be a border patrol agent, and get out there and where the action is, and, and get the job done. Absolutely. So you talked also, or I did, about the EMT program, and I want to touch on that a little bit, even though I was kind of outside the, the saw realm, but a lot of people don't realize that we have agents that may or may not be part of any of the special operations teams, but have gone through the training to become 
EMTs, either basic, advanced, or all the way up to paramedics. Yeah. So uh, great, great opportunity to talk about that. So before I was on board, I was actually a, a sector EMT in, in Laredo sector. So when I came in, I was already an EMT. So that was just kind of a natural transition. Once I had a year in the patrol, I, I started working as a Border Patrol EMT. Uh, again, like we said, you know, the numbers for Borstar and Bortac aren't that great. So the, the EMTs and, and, like you said, the intermediates and par, uh, paramedics provide a great source. You, you know, if you, if you have an injury or an injured alien at a station or the other thing is something really bad happens out in the field. Non-citizen. Non-citizen. Yeah, yeah there you go. I'm still... <laughs> things things move slow at Sog, yeah. uh, with us yeah. getting those memos. But um, if something happens, and or even a U.S. citizen, mm-hmm. you, you know, uh, and I tell this people all the time, the chances of Borstar or Bortac guy being right there pretty slim. Yeah. So a lot of times it's those station or, or sector EMTs that are going to be the first to respond, and they they provide a great resource. And you know, like we talked to, respond to the motor motor vehicle accidents and in, in uh, the really remote areas. Uh, and a lot of times the Border Patrol is the emergency medical service yep. in, in, in these really remote areas. So I think they provide a great service. It's great training. Um, and they really do kind of work with and enhance special ops. I think so, too. And, and there's there's obviously a lot more of them now than there were 20, 20 years ago. And, and now having medical direction in CBP that enables them to, to do all those advanced uh, life-saving skills, I think the communities that they're in have probably benefited immeasurably from it. Absolutely. And so uh, other agencies, even uh, OFO has looked at how do we replicate what the Border Patrol's done with their EMT program and other law enforcement. I think Border Patrol is head and shoulders above any other law enforcement agency is uh, per, uh, of providing medically trained personnel out in the field. I think that's something we do great. And then again, you know, speaking to the human side of the Border Patrol, this all comes internally. You know, the, the chief of the Border Patrol sees like, hey, this is needed. It's going to help people, not just Border Patrol agents, but U.S. citizens, non-citizens, uh, people that live on the border. This is just something that we do on our own to, to take care of people. And I think that's something that the general public doesn't see very often. And I want to add one thing to that because that's a, that's a great point. All of these men and women that we're talking about, whether it is BORTAC, BORSTAR, MRT, EMT program, you name it, they step up and do these things for zero extra pay, for zero extra recognition. They only do it because they want to, because they have a passion for it, and because they care. Absolutely. How would you not want to be a part of a group of people like that? Absolutely. It's beyond me. It, it, I'm, I'm amazed every time I, I, you know, I, I think about it and I see what it's become. It, it makes me proud to see what SOG has become and and excited to see what it will become. I know, I know it is for you, too. I want to talk about one of the uh, the more exciting aspects that people tend to want to hear about, and that is going back to the OCONUS piece, the, the, the foreign deployments. And you have a little bit more experience than the average person in this. And I want to, I want to take a second and, and talk a little bit about Jesse, about Mr. Munoz. So joined the Border Patrol in August of 2000. Correct. Class 448 at Laredo North Station. And you've already told me you don't remember your class chant, which I just, <laughs> man, I just can't believe. That. I don't think we had one. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I think you're lying. But I think Borstar Class 7 in 2004, successfully graduated. You were a supervisory board patrol agent in Ajo, Arizona. You got a field operations supervisor at SOG. You got a, an assistant chief at headquarters. Uh, you were a CBP advisor in Belmopan, Belize. We'll talk about that in a second. You were the national Warstar Commander, and you kind of alluded to this before. Prior to joining the War Patrol, 
you were a U.S. Army combat medic for eight years. You deployed in 1991 to Iraq in Operation Desert Storm with the 3rd Infantry Division. In addition to being a CBP advisor in Belize, you've also done foreign deployments with Borstar in Mexico, Kenya, Honduras, and Panama. And oh, by the way, you have a master's degree in strategic studies from the U.S. Army War College. Did I miss anything? No, that's it. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the foreign deployments. What is the mission, first, of a SOG operator when they go OCONUS to a different country? What are they doing? Yeah, basically, we try to stay in our lane, uh, you know, with what we instruct when we go OCONUS. A lot of it is just border security. Uh, and that means a lot of different things depending on what co- what country you're in. One thing, and, and Bortac kind of took the lead on it for a lot of years, and then Borstar started getting involved, is kind of doing an assessment. A lot of times these countries just simply don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. So we, we could send a BORTAC operator and, 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 you know, just to back up real quick, I think that's one thing that's great about BORSTAR and BORTAC is you don't have to have rank on your collar for us to give you a lot of responsibility. Mm-hmm. So there's times that we'll send somebody at the operator level, not a supervisor, just because they, they've proven themselves and we'll send them to a country maybe that we've never been before. It's like, hey, go and you're going to report to to the ambassador and and give a uh, an honest assessment of what they need for for border security. So I think that's one one thing that's unique about SOG, especially with the foreign deployments. So we we try not to train military unless the military has a border security um, nexus or a, a function, and it's just kind of uh, a lot of things. Like I said, we'll do a, we'll do an assessment of, of their border. We'll also do an assessment of their law enforcement that's going to be trolling the border. We've gone into some countries and basically created a, a border security where we put on a training. Uh, sometimes they they already have a dedicated uh, border patrol or they have a dedicated law enforcement agency, and it's doing that assessment and putting on advanced training. Uh, but but then again, sometimes we start it from the ground up. So generally, that's what the missions are. I know what myself, myself it, it's been great, and I've got to see it from a lot of different levels. So, you know, when I went to Mexico in 2005, that's what it was. Like, we're, we're putting on some medical training for people that are going to be trolling the border. Then I've got to go as a team leader where you assemble a team and you go and you're, you're kind of leading that team in that engagement. Now in my position, I go to Egypt or Jordan and doing senior le- uh, leader engagements looking at a like bigger problems how are we going to train everybody in the region one thing that i'm working on now is in the middle east is setting up a border security training in jordan where we can bring all of our partners from egypt and lebanon and iraq so that everybody gets trained exactly the same and working with partners from uh, the department of state and department of defense so i think when you're at sog as you move up you'll have different oconus engagements of of what we tasked you with but basically that's what it is is uh, like I said, we try to stay in our lane and only teach border security, but because there's so many skill sets at SOG, there's a lot that we can train now. You know, of course, you have BORTAC that's great with the advanced tactics, advanced firearms, uh, and then you bring in BORSTAR. They've done uh, scuba training, OCONUS. Uh, one thing, too, that, that's kind of a new trend is they want that search and rescue capability that BORSTAR has, too. So when you look in Central America, uh, lately it's been real heavy with, with BORSTAR. Uh, teaching law enforcement how to also save people. So uh, I, I think there's a lot of uh, things that you can do, O'Connor. Um, one one thing that we do is we have a lot of uh, partners from the Department of Defense that come to SOG, and we'll give them our SOG 101 brief. One thing that they're fascinated on is our last slide as we show them 
where we've been around the world. Mm -hmm. And it, it just lights up the globe of countries we've been in from former Soviet countries to Middle East, Africa, South America, Central America. And this is, you know, of course, going back years. But but every year we're probably in, you know, three to five different countries. Yep. And uh, it's based in a similar uh, in a similar vein to the uh, the Army Special Forces uh, FID mission set, you know, Foreign Internal Defense, except that we're doing it with law enforcement and border security entities, not the military, unless, like you said, that's the that's the border security element. And so our training and advisory duties are over there to that spectrum on the law enforcement side. You mentioned standing up from the ground. I can remember Honduras. We basically stood up their uh, border police. They they actually have a or they used to have a BORTAC team themselves. Absolutely, they call themselves BORTAC. Mm-hmm. And and today, if you go to uh, their training facility, they have a BORTAC Scorpion on their rappel wall. Yep. So yeah, yep. And so, and I remember uh, during uh, deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. So we much the same. We were uh, embedded with the uh, in some cases the U.S. Army, in some cases the Marine Corps on their on their border security teams and actually working with the, uh, you know, Iraqi border police or, you know, and the job was basically the same to train the Iraqi border police to be out there and, and show how to do border patrol work to keep those things from coming into the country that could do harm to the Iraqi people or or our soldiers even more so. Yeah. Yeah. So there's tons of things that are going on. I don't think a lot of people realize just how expansive uh, the border patrol and, and CBP is it's, it's 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 global. It's not just in in the United States. You were a CBP advisor in Belize. Talk a little bit about that. Now that's that's a step up from border patrol. That's in the CBP, our parent agency. What did you do there? Yeah, so that that was a very unique experience, and and I really enjoyed it because, like you said, I wasn't there just to speak on behalf of the border patrol. It was all of CBP. So I, I think one great lesson I learned there is, you know, if you don't know something, reach out to people that do, you know, so I was there uh, and again, border patrol agent, I got it. I understand border security, but they would say, Hey, can you go to the airport and uh, see what our, our airport needs? So my first response <laughs> was sure. Let me call Washington DC and, and get somebody from OFO down here. So I, I think I, I learned a lot from that mission. I learned a lot about CBP uh, just because I had to work with so many people outside of border patrol. Great experience though. It, it was rough living. I was, I was on a golf course for about seven <laughs> months and, and, and Belmont pan. Uh, so I took that one for the team, mm-hmm. uh, cause nobody else wanted to go, but, um, again, great experience and anything related to CBP, they expect you to be the expert on. So I, I think a, a great skill set a lot of us uh, need sometimes is to say, hey, I'm not an expert on that. Let, I, I don't want to make it up, you know, on the go. Let me reach out to, to experts and facilitate people coming in and out of Belize that, that can provide really good training. Because you're talking about trade, cargo, passengers, uh, you know, tourism, the all the things that CBP encompasses that's outside the Border Patrol wheelhouse a lot of the time. But if you're representing CBP, that's where your network really comes into play. That's where a lot of these these OCONUS missions in particular that you're talking about, you talk about having somebody that's uh, intellectually sound and exercises good judgment, but to have that political savvy to be able to function with in, you know, the interagency, work with the State Absolutely. Department, work with host nation entities, you know, you're actually you're representing the United States to a foreign country, you know, that, and and to other entities within the U.S. government to include Department of Defense and Department of State. So not just anybody goes out and does that. But if you haven't established that network and, and 
built those coalitions, it's going to be tough to be successful in a job like that where if you need somebody from Air and Marine or you need somebody from OFO, Office of Field Operations, you're not going to have them to reach out to. Yeah, and, and you, know, you bring up a great point. So one thing before I did that CBP mission, the CBP advisor in Belize, is when I did my headquarters time, I wasn't with Office of the Border Patrol. I was with CBP headquarters in the Joint Operations Directorate. So I had already worked in an office that was full of OFO, Border Patrol, Air Marine, a lot of civilians working together. So that was right before I did the CBP advisor, which I thought was was perfect. So I had people, just because connections that I made, um, that I could just reach out to and send an email to and say, hey, they, they mentioned this. I, I know we have it in CBP. I just don't know what they're talking about. And they could explain it. So the, I, I think it, it proves a great point that, you know, you join the Border Patrol, but you have to take jobs outside of the Border Patrol sometimes that whether it's CBP or as a liaison, because you're just going to learn so much and, and make a lot of great connections. Well, it goes back to stepping outside your comfort zone, just like you're going through a selection course and, and preparing yourself to be better. Same thing with your career in CBP and the Border Patrol. Take those opportunities to step outside your comfort zone and improve yourself professionally. Absolutely. So let's take it back down to the Border Patrol for a second. Let's talk a little about something that's uh, that's near and dear to all of us. You know, we're, we're part of what we call a green family. The Border Patrol is very special to all of us. It's, you know, that's why we make it a career and, and it'll be a part of it forever. And one of the things we always talk about with the trainees that, that are here is the importance of our guiding principles, honor first, and and what that means in the lives of each and every one of us that wear this uniform. Talk about what Honor First means to you. and What would you tell the trainees that are looking to become Border Patrol agents and how they ought to see that as a guiding principle? Yeah, that's great. And and, and I love the, the chance to talk about that because it means so much to me. I, you know, one thing that, that I'll talk to, to the new class about is how proud I was when, when, I, when I got my badge, like how much it meant to me. And how I never wanted to do anything to tarnish that. You know, the reason I joined the Border Patrol was just I, I, I grew up on the Texas-Louisiana border. So I, I never saw Border Patrol. The, the river I grew up on was the Sabine River, you know, that separates <laughs> the two. And so once uh, I was already out of the military, and once I started learning about the Border Patrol, it was just fascinating to me. I was an emergency room nurse when I joined the Border Patrol. So I, t I took a pretty good cut in pay, sure. but I was just like, this is the job that I want to do. Um, and, and that's why I joined, because I was so passionate about it. So, uh, you know, I remember uh, sitting in Charleston, Class 44A, just getting my badge and just like so much pride, not really in myself, just that I was going to be part of this agency that, that I had so much respect for. So for me, honor first is, you know, having a lot of integrity, um, always doing the right thing. And, and, you know, one thing that, uh, you know, we talked about is I coach kids in, in baseball and football. One thing I talk to them about is always doing the right thing, even when nobody's watching, you know, like it's easy to show up on game day and, and play hard, but are you going to put in the work and the practice when nobody can see it? And I think as a border patrol agent, you're out working in really remote areas. A lot of times you think, well, nobody's watching, nobody's seeing but you just always have to do the right thing. And if you do that, then then you're going to have a great career and you don't have to worry about a lot of stuff. But I, I think to me, that's that's the big uh, thing that I think about honor first is just your integrity and always doing the right thing. And not because you're going to get an award or you're going to get some accolades. You do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. Well said. Well said. And I do want to uh, foot stomp on a, a point that you made. doesn't matter what we do as we branch out into – our careers in the U.S. Border Patrol, what odds and ends we put on our, our uniforms 
probably the most important thing for all of us that we get ever in our career is that Border Patrol patch and that badge. Nothing means more than that. First and foremost, we're all Border Patrol agents. Absolutely. Any words of wisdom or, or words of advice you want to give to any trainees or potential uh, uh, trainees that are looking at applying? You know, I would just say that it, it's a lot of it's a lot of work to even get here to the Border Patrol Academy, and then you you know what they're going to go through in the next few months. Just don't ever do anything, uh, you know, to mess that up. Th- this is a great career. There's so much that you can do within the Border Patrol. It has so much to offer. Just make sure that you're constantly learning. You're constantly giving back to the Border Patrol. Uh, great, great organization. Lot, lots of history. And just kind of keep that in mind as you go through your career, that all the hard work that you put in to get here. And, and I, I really feel like this, this organization will give you as much as you put into it. You, you know, when I joined, I didn't have a bachelor's degree. Uh, and like we talked about, now I have a master's degree. I finished a bachelor's degree when I was a first-line supervisor in Ajo. Border Patrol sent me to get a master's degree for free. Just let me go to school for 11 months. I've had some great opportunities. So just put a lot into this job, and it'll definitely take care of you. Deputy Chief Patrol Agent Jesse Munoz, my brother, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for another episode of What's Important Now. Everybody stay safe out there. We'll talk again soon. Honor first.